You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, and we also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com. And you can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. It's my pleasure to welcome Nahid Firoz Patel and Bikram Chandra onto the podcast today to talk about Nahid's novel, A Mirror Made of Rain, which is out now from Unnamed Press. Nahid Firoz Patel is the author of A Mirror Made in Rain, she is the graduate. Uh, she is a graduate of the MFA program at Columbia University School of the Arts. Her writing has appeared in the New England Review, The Guardian, HuffPost, Scroll.in, Bomb Magazine, Pen America Blog, The Rumpus, Europe Now Journal, Quarterly Conversation, Lit Hub, Poets and Writers, and elsewhere. Vikram Chandra's latest book is Geek Sublime: The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty. He has also written the novels Sacred Games and Red Earth and the and Pouring Rain the short story collection, Love and Longing in Bombay. He was an executive producer on the Netflix adaptation of Sacred Games, an international hit that was included in the New York Times list of the 30 best international shows of the decade. His honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Commonwealth Writers Prize, the Crossword Prize, the David Hingman Prize for Fiction, and the Salon Book Award. He teaches creative writing at the University of California, Berkeley. How are you two doing today? Good, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, hi, it's it's so good to be here and I'm so excited to be speaking with Vikram about my book, my novel, uh, Mirror Mirror Rain, which uh, published with uh, Unnamed Press yesterday. And yeah. Congratulations on the pub day and you have a little uh, selection for us to read from. I do. Um, so this is, uh, so the book is in like, four parts like a play. Um, and this is the, this is from a marriage, from a wedding scene towards the end of the book. Um, and my main character, Numi, I, I love this moment because it's really beautiful. I think this it's a mother, it's a granddaughter, grandmother moment and I've always just really loved it. Um, so I'm gonna read from it. Um, Veer and I would marry in my grandparents' garden. Lily Mama and I sat on the veranda on a winter afternoon, the sunshine sweet and soft, our heads together over a goldsmith sketch for my wedding necklace. I held a stone the size of my pinky nail up to the light. It was full of green fire. I brought it closer to my eye. Remember, Lily Mama scolded, emeralds are brittle. They crack easily. Where'd you get these? I asked, setting the emerald down gently on the blue velvet cloth. They were my mother's, Lily Mama smiled. I set them aside for you on the day you were born. Love squeezed my ribs. Lily Mama was good at hiding how much she cared. We looked out at the garden in comfortable silence. A green bird the size of a ping pong ball with opalescent wings and a ruler straight tail landed on the terracotta bird bath by the rose bushes, admired its re reflection for a moment and then flew off. Ufo, this new gardener has made it his life mission to ruin my roses, Lily Mama said. 
She trundled off into the lawn, barking orders in her broken, mangled Hindi, looking large and pure in the yellow morning sunshine, like a fat, gracious angel. A greater cuckoo, a crow pheasant, hopped onto the lawn, copper wings burnished in the sunlight. Its eyes were tiny red flames and its oil black head. It saw Lily Mama and took off, letting out a whoop, whoop, whoop. In remote parts of the country, like the village Shantabai grew up in, the cuckoo's call was a bad omen. I'd always thought of it as a sign of good luck. I pointed the cuckoo out to Lily Mama and said, look, my lucky bird. He doesn't belong to you, Lily Mama said. Luck is a wild, untamable thing. I remember being in the kitchen when Lily Mama showed Asha how to make Jay's favorite dessert, Malida, made of wheat, ghee, cardamom, almonds, and sugar. Asha slivered the almonds with a long knife and tossed them into a sizzling pan of ghee as Lily Mama watched, arms crossed. No, no, you're supposed to wait until they are golden brown. I saw Asha's eyes begin to tear up. Her smile collapsed under the weight of disapproval. The knife slipped out of her hand and clattered to the floor by Lily Mama's feet. Well, come on, pick it up, Lily Mama said. Pick it up, she roared. Asha dived to the floor. She lifted the knife. It flashed in my eyes. My mother, too, was a brittle gemstone. She, too, cracked easily. The cuckoo flew into the bamboo thicket. I found him perched on a gray stone, puffing up his throat. The bird let out a few whoops. I bowed. He flew off without returning the greeting. Did you put aside gemstones for the other baby, I said to Lily Mama, coming out of the thicket? He died, so I, can I have his share too? I blinked until my eyes adjusted to the sunlight, putting one hand over my forehead like a visor to cut the glare. Lily Mama was bent over, big bottom in the air, pulling dead leaves out with her hands. She turned and said, what? Then went back to stripping the rose bush. I strolled up with my hands clasped behind my back. A few years ago, Shantabai told me my mother had a second baby, born when I was six. He didn't survive. I studied Lily, Master, Lily Mama's alabaster face. Something bright and green flashed in the corner of my vision. I turned to watch a flock of parrots alight on a bare tree and turn into its leaves. They took off again when the dogs ran helter-skelter on the lawn barking. Lily Mama straightened up and squinted at me. He looked like you, she said, a tiny thing. She cupped her hands and brought them together. Asha was out of control, screaming, shouting. She looked down at the grass. His little lungs couldn't work, only lived a few days. I remember when my mother would lie still on the bed and let me paint her arms and legs with my Camden color set. I made flowers on her arms, vines that twisted around her long, beautiful legs. I had only a few happy memories with Asha after the age of six. I took Lily Mama's hands, plump as Madeline cakes, in mine. I'm sorry, I said. Lily Mama smiled. Pudding, she said. A tailor bird flew down to the bird bath. I took the emerald out of its velvet bag and held it out. Look, I said to the bird, this color is you. Numi, what did I say about being careful with those emeralds? Startled, the tailor bird took off, a jewel flying away in the pale winter sky. Awesome. Thank you for reading that. Thank you. Um, so Vikram, before we before we get yeah. on to anything else, I want to say congratulations, big congratulations on the release. 
and uh, on that rave review in the LA Review of Books. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been such an exciting uh, journey after such a rocky, shaky start. Um, you know, when we um, when we went out on submission with the novel in the US, uh, it was at the height of the COVID, um, you know, just as COVID was revving up in the US and it was just like the most, um, the mm. scariest time and also the most um, disappointing times in terms of like how hard it was to get, um, you know, somebody to acquire this book, the novel right. in the US. Yeah, yeah. So wait, so how long have you been working on it? Because I can't, when did we meet at the Breadloaf Writers Conference? Was that like four or five years ago? No, more. It was 2016. More. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and then you already had, I think it was the first chapter, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you must have been working on it before that, even, of course. Yes. Uh, I started working on the, I started writing the novel, um, you know, soon after, I think, as yeah, soon after my daughter was born. And like, I was in the MFA program mm -hmm. uh, at Columbia in 2014. Um, and, you know, I was workshopping. I've been workshopping this novel for like, like almost a decade. Um, right, and right. then, yeah, at Breadloaf, you read the first chapter, right. which, which is now the first chapter. And I remember yeah. you said it was delicious and you loved yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and that was really cool. And yeah, and then, um, in fact, I uh, soon after that, I read um, Geek Sublime. Right. And Geek Sublime has literally been like a foundational text for me on how to go about like, because I've always struggled with plot and that helped me so much understand what, you know, what plot means and how it, uh, how it operates. Um, so yeah, and I have so many questions for you about Geek Sublime and about plot. So. Right, right. Well, so, you know, 10 years, like you're working on my time scales. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's like, it's a testament to your discipline, right? And, and your, your your commitment and to your obsession right because the only way you can get through 10 years of writing a book is if you're obsessed right and you can't get away from it yeah um i think it was henry james right who said the madness of art yeah. i wish i could remember the entire we do what we do in the dark yes. and the rest the madness of art yeah. so yeah i did what i had to do in the dark um and you know i was just hoping i i i just didn't know what else i could do um and uh, you know I've just been really lucky. I've been helped along the way by so many, you know, mm. it really takes a, as you know, as yeah, you well yeah, know, yeah. it really takes a village for a novel to, to come yeah. into existence. So from my, you know, starting from my editor in India, Rahul Soni, mm. um, to my editor here, Olivia Taylor-Smith, and my agent, I just, everybody has had such a hand in shaping uh, the novel that exists today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes a toll also not only on yourself, but those immediately around you, right? Because oh, yes. They have to live with you, the grumpy writer, while you do this, right? Yeah, I, I remember you mentioning somewhere that you you write like maybe 400 words a day, mm -hmm. and then no one should talk to you before you've had your chai, because <laughs> you're, you're just <laughs> not not approachable and I thought that was so cool and also the fact that you you work on such a um, slow timeline is also uh, really interesting uh, to me yeah. yeah I wish I could write faster right I'm jealous of people who produce incredible work in like two years and like how the hell did you do that right? but I guess everyone has, you know like this fast bowlers and slow bowl, you know 
yeah. and you can't make change from one to the other just because you want to yeah and like when you're writing at that at that speed is it because you're editing alongside or do you wait to edit at the end no like, no no i mean in the especially in the first draft you know like you said i don't know where i'm going right mm -hmm. i i know perhaps you know at the beginning like for all my books i had just a vague i mean vague sense of a person and yeah. then a landscape right and then a kind of general sense of where i was going but none of the details none of the plot who the other characters were right so i mean and so what happens i don't know if it happens like this for you that the only way i can write ahead is by discovering what is going to happen immediately in the future right so mm -hmm. you end up with a lot of like branches and tendrils that never make it into the final book, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. the first draft especially is completely shapeless, right? Because you yeah. make all these discoveries and and then I try not to be too hard on myself, right? Because, yeah. because if you start editing in like intensely as you write, at least for me, it would end up in an endless loop. <laughs> I think I, yeah. I don't think I could work like that. It would be recursive. You wouldn't be able to move forward because you would just yeah. be like. Yeah. So how do you, how does it happen for you? How do you work? Do you, do you have a kind of outline before you start? Or? Um, for a mirror, mirror of rain was more about more of a mosaic. Um, I had scenes. I mean, I I think the voice of Nomi came to me very clearly mm. uh, early on, mm. and um, you know, it also. I think the workshop process, because it was my uh, it was my debut novel, I, I just didn't, I, I would have taken a lot, I can think of taking a lot more risks now artistically mm. than I could have thought of back then. Mm. So I, I was very guided by, for better or for worse, by the workshop feed, feedback I did get. Yeah, yeah, and right. that led to like a few false starts mm. um, and a, a lot of like, maybe, you know, I had to kind of, I had to start again a couple of times. Um, but I, I mean, I remember you in, um, in your interview that I did um, when I interviewed you for Asymptote, I remember you saying that the characters kind of tell you, tell you where to go. Yeah. Um, for me, it was basically just Numi telling me where to go. Yeah. And it was Numi's, Numi was the cameraman and she was pointing the camera at everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just went where, wherever her, her eye went, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that posed a lot of problems for me in terms of plot because like mm -hmm. it's just literally somebody just observing everything and like commenting on it in yes. a way so how the hell do you make that interesting for a reader mm -hmm. um and i think that's where like a really good editor uh was really yeah. instrumental because you know my editor in india he really took he was really like the gordon lish of editors for me i mean he really took my novel and kind of restructured it in a way that it started having a, a narrative, uh, you know, energy. Um, so yeah, it was, I think probably I'm not going to do it so, um, you know, I'm not going to make it so complicated for myself the next time around. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you, I mean, so what I was saying was that that plot part in the first draft is like very confused. Right. Yeah. And then maybe third or fourth draft, when I start to understand the structure of the book in, in the large and in the small, right? Like like chapter level, scene level, then, yeah. then it starts to, I can think in, then in analytical, analytical terms, right? Because before that, uh, I'm just letting it go, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, get it out on the page in some sense, right?
do you find it difficult to silence your inner critic or do you have an allowed inner critic to start yes. with yeah 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 of course right and so like you know like you said i write like 400 words every day so what i do the next morning when i or afternoon when i'm sitting down to write is i read those 400 words right and mm-hmm. then you always think, you know, what a shitty sentence. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then and then I try and clean it up a bit, right, before I go on, but not too hard, right? Because at that point, the job is just moving forward. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, the other thing is, like, you you always have the uncertainty about whether you're doing, what you're doing is any good, whether it's worth mm-hmm. doing even, whether you're accurate about what, you're getting down on the page, right? Like, so if I'm writing about something that I know nothing about, right, then I, I do a lot of obsessive research in that mm-hmm. yeah. just to kind of make sure that it has some level of accuracy, right? It's not completely wrong because, I mean, of course, like angry readers will come at you because if you do yeah. something completely wrong, but even I just don't feel good about it, right? Like, what, what the hell are you doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that for me, uh, I do, uh, I have to kind of control myself because sometimes I just use also use research as a, as a form of procrastination and be like, Oh no, I have to read everything about, you know, this before I write a single sentence. And sometimes, um, but I want to ask you, does it get easier with every book you write? Like, does your inner critic, no, 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 it never gets easier. Right. It's always Uh, a struggle. It's a daily struggle. Right. I, I guess like once you publish one book, at least you know that you can get to the end of a project. Right. Okay. And and that is a great comfort, right? Because I think when you're starting out, when I was writing my first novel, all of this was happening to me, right? Like I don't know what I'm doing, loss of faith, is it any good? Yeah. And then you're not sure first that, yeah, if 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 you're capable of finishing it, right? Or will it just sit in a drawer half finished? And then also, like, I mean, I try not to think about reception and all of that, but I think especially when you're very young, is somebody finally going to publish this? Is anybody even going to be interested in it, right? So so I think that's where writer's dilemma comes from, right? Like, you have to speak, but is anybody going to listen? listen? Yeah. yeah, I have. So I um, I actually have this quote from Red Earth Pouring Rain uh, that I want to read out um, in which the Parashir, is that how, is that how Parashir, it's yeah. Parashir. Parashir. Yeah. So he's, he says, all stories have in them the seed of all other stories. Mm. Any story, if continued long enough, becomes other stories. Can you, can you like elaborate on what, what yeah. that yeah, sure. sure. I mean, I think so, you know, let's say you're writing like yours is a multi-generational story, right? Yeah. So, so it starts with a certain generation, right? So even if you're writing like a very, not even like about one generation, whatever that means, but a very like sort of contained novel, like let's just take The Great Gatsby, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, it's beautiful because it takes these characters, it presents certain questions, it makes you curious, it then closes down in a lovely way the entire arc that has been set in motion. But then you, you know, you could ask what happens to Nick Carraway next? Yeah, I see. <laughs> Where yeah. does he go? Right. And like for me, the way I write, because I like these these stories which have multiple layers and stuff, 
the temptation is to keep broadening the scope, yeah. right? And then, so then finally, put in, what are you going to take out? And, you know, for Sacred Games, which is a 900-page book, yeah. deals with crime and spying and, you know, all of that. Um, I finally, when I, I got the first draft to, you know, the first complete whatever draft it was, and then I could I cut like 500 pages from 1400 pages, right? Oh my gosh! Wow. And then after that, no hard, no matter how hard I struggle, yeah. right? I couldn't get it any shorter. I would take out a chunk and then realize and then, that okay, I'm losing this other res resonance somewhere else. Yeah. And then I was just hoping that you know when it got first to my agent and then to editors, they would cut parts out. And it was really weird. I kept asking like please tell me what can be removed from here and nobody could do it right so I, I have that I have that impulse and then I try and control it you know as much as I can and so that's what I mean right so like that's the thing about the Indian epics the Mahabharata and the yeah. Ramana, right they're encyclopedic and there's there's a line um, in the <laughs> Mahabharata which more or less says if it's not here then it doesn't exist Right, so it tries to capture not just like generations, but an entire world of possible subjects, right? And and so so I think, yeah, Indian stories have sometimes have this tendency to go on, right? Because they can spread in multiple dimensions, right? And they become very multi generational, right? Yeah, what you what you refer to as the pre modern registers of uh, Indian literature. Uh, versus your, uh, you know, your appreciation for American modernism, which is more like, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of clean to the bone and stuff right. like that. But I understood this, this, um, this, this quote to mean like I'm very fascinated by fractal patterns, mm, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. basically like snowflakes or branches, and it is like the same pattern kind of repeating itself, but on a smaller and smaller scale. And right. I think that repetition itself generates a lot of narrative energy. Yeah, where yeah. so you know instead of like you have the Western um, idea of like conflict being like a turbine engine that kind of drives mm -hmm. narrative forward, you have this you have this fractal pattern that starts keep, keeps branching out like a tree, like yeah, a plant. Yeah. And that uh, is also a form of plot or structure, um, mm. which you know is I think very appealing and very beautiful. And yeah. I think that Sacred Games is, to me, it is really like a tree yeah. because it's about, yeah. it's about Mumbai crime, but it's also about generational trauma. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's about so many things. I can totally imagine how you would, it would be really hard because it would be like cutting off a branch of a tree. Like, you know, yeah. the tree might not survive, yeah. you yeah. know? Um, I mean, the visual model that I had in my head pretty much all the way through writing the book, I mean, there was a point like early on, probably when I was two or 300 pages of manuscript in that I got the architecture and I understood that it was going to be a mandala, right? Like the, the circular shape with mm -hmm. like sections in it, but which are yeah. seemingly separate, but they resonate with each other and you can't take something out without affecting the whole, right? And there's a, like, I mean, maybe it's too obvious, but there's a scene in there in which Sartaj goes to, uh, he's walking by and he sees these Buddhist monks who are making a sand mandala, right? And yeah. He stops to look at it, right? And so that was my thing is that like, again, like, you know, like you were saying, this is a very ancient pattern in, in, the yeah. South, in South Asia. Um, 
So I think we get it. Like it's it's like an, a, a heritage that we all grow up with, right? And yeah. even we might not consciously realize this, but it's it's working in us, right? Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. And I think that's I love it. I love that there's that little Easter egg of the mandala in the in the novel itself. Right. Um, and I remember in Red Loaf, um, you gave this uh, incredible presentation where you showed us this um, visual poetry, mm -hmm. which is also kind of, you right. know, when the, what, right. what, could you remind me what that was? Because it was, sure, I remember, sure. the, yeah. It's called Chitra Kavya. And, and uh -huh. that means uh, picture poetry. And it can also suggest the poetry of amazement. Right. And so there's, there's, um, this Western equivalence, um, like like you, I guess you would call it figurative poetry. So like you know, if you're writing about an angel, the shape of the poem suggests yeah. the you know wings, the angel's yeah. wings, right? Yeah. So so Indian poets have been doing this for centuries, right? So like mm -hmm. you write a verse, and then by tracing syllabic patterns in the verse, you'll start to see uh, you know a drum, for instance. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, or you'll see a snake, right? Once you know how to, to look at it. Um, yeah. And the kinds of feats that they're able to achieve are just mind boggling, right? And so that's been a kind of long-term obsession <laughs> of mine that here are these poets and the thrill there for the, I mean, the hard part of course for the poet is working within not only a kind of rigid form of a couplet, right? Where you have to, mm -hmm. You have a yeah. certain number of syllables, you have like four yeah. feet, you know, and all mm -hmm. of that, others to it. You're also doing this other layer of stuff where you're hiding these patterns, right? So it's insanely yeah. difficult. And then for the for the viewer, the reader, the reader becomes a viewer too, right? Yeah, yeah. Suddenly see this thing in the poem um, and it's astonishing, right? And that's not the only part. I mean, Chitrakavya also includes something that is called Shlesha which is multiple meaning poetry, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so what you can do is uh, you can break apart the syllables of a sentence in different ways. So it becomes, um, it means different things, right? So these guys mm -hmm. will write a poem which read in one way, means a story from the Mahabharata, and then you read it in the other way, and it's a poem about the Ramayana, right? Wow. And so, like, I mean, again, like I was saying, there's Western equivalence, right? Like, I will not remember the name of the French novel in which he never uses the letter E. Right? Yes, I, yeah, yeah. Um, I believe that comes from a formal school called Ulipo. Yes, you know, the Ulipo right. school where you, you uh, impose a set of formal constraints on yourself right. um, in order to be more creative. And I've always thought that really fascinating. Yeah. Um, that self-limitation could yeah. be a... Uh, uh, avenue for exploration right. in a way you yeah. know yeah exactly I mean so you know Indian <laughs> poets have done things like write an entire couplet you know in which they're using only one sound one syllable right wow right and of course <laughs> I often look at this and think who's the reader for this thing because what yeah. they do is in order to achieve this they have to use really difficult Sanskrit or Tamil <clears throat> or whatever language, Telugu, whatever language they're working in, mm -hmm. for which you need an enormous amount of knowledge to figure out what those very specialized forms of words mean, right? So at that level, we're talking about an incredibly sophisticated 
refined culture of writing, but also of reading, right? So, so it's fascinating to think about this also in historical terms, right? Like, uh, why was this important? You know, like I was saying, who is the audience? Who are the patrons for this? Do you think that um, Indians writing today are, or any? Do you think anybody in in South Asia writing today in, has incorporated this these kind of forms into their their fiction or non-fiction? Do you think that this is very much still like a it's it's something that's been left behind in the past. Well, uh, I I'm not aware of any modern fiction, at least in which people have done this. Uh, <laughs> but there are still people practitioners of Kavya, right? Wow. Uh, who are working today, right? And and there's a small audience for this. I mean, I'm aware of some people who do this in Sanskrit, but also the audience is much reduced, right? Because hardly anybody, a very tiny minority of Indians actually speak or understand Sanskrit. Yeah. Right? So, mm -hmm. so um, you know, I, I sometimes hear of it. I've, I've seen some of it, um, the modern stuff that people are doing, but I think at least from the popular imagination, it has kind of vanished, right? Because we've, you know, Sanskrit itself as a, even an elite language of the lingua franca, I mean, elite lingua franca mm -hmm. has vanished, right, pretty much, right? And so the function that Sanskrit used to do, English does it, you know, fulfills the same function of a, of a, a common language, subcontinental wide common mm -hmm. language, just like, mm -hmm. you know, Latin used to be that language in, in Europe, but mm -hmm. nobody speaks or uses Latin now, right? Yeah. And you, you in, in Geek Sublime, um, I remember you talking about, you think that Sanskrit would actually be the perfect language for code because no, no, it is no, so no. precise? No. That, no, that is such a, that is such a lie. It's such a misunderstanding, both oh. of that Sanskrit works and okay. also that, that of how computer code works, right? Okay. So, I mean, Sanskrit is unique among natural languages in that this amazing man named Panini, sometime around the fourth, fifth uh, century BCE, produced a complete formal grammar that describes how all the syllables, all the grammatical uh, parts of Sanskrit can come together, right? And it's a very short book called the Ashtyadhyayi, um, eight chapters. And you can print it, the entire thing out, the main text of it, you can print out in about 40 pages of, of uh, in 40 pages, like in 12 point font, right? But what's amazing about it is that actually it's an algorithm that generates Sanskrit, right? Mm -hmm. And so no other language has this, right? People have tried to do this, but nobody's ever come up with a solution for it. Um, so when you say the word, um, generative algorithm, generative grammar, people instantly think of computer code, right? Because okay. that's what computer code really is, right? Right, yeah. But, but Sanskrit is not any more accurate in, in communicating meaning, right, to, to another listener, because, <clears throat> you know, in normal usage, it's ambiguous, right? So for instance, the famous example that pre-modern Sanskrit Mm -hmm. uh, linguists used to to get this idea across was that the simple sentence the sun has set mm -hmm. right and so what that lovely example the guy who gives it says that let's say that you say a, a general says to the king right mm -hmm. and 
in that context, it can mean it's now time to attack because we're going to do a night attack, right? Okay. And if a, if a woman says this to her friend, it can mean the sun has set and now my lover can sneak through you know, my garden, right? Yeah. So language shape changes according to, to context, right? In Sanskrit, yeah. I mean, not only is it completely like that in terms of, um, of ordinary language, but the Sanskrit poets and linguistic philosophers built an entire theory how the reason that poetic language works like this is because it's suggestive, right? So, yeah. so you know, yeah. any like two lines of poetry that have lasted like 2000 years, you know, from ancient India or, or to Greece, we keep reading it because it suggests different meanings, different words, right? Yeah. So, but the whole function of computer code is to, is to, for a human being to tell machinery completely unambiguously what to do what to do <laughs> <laughs> right and, yeah and so and so you know uh, it these are actually called context-free grammars or languages right like there has to be no context no context right or only the context of the immediate machine that you're addressing mm -hmm. and if you have ambiguity in code you know nowadays you can kill people right you yeah. can crash planes Oops. by doing that <clears throat> so, so this thing goes around whatsapp and Twitter and Facebook, like I've seen it like probably every Oh, so it's month. become like a meme. It's uh, a meme. Like some person yeah. will say, oh, Sanskrit is used at NASA, which is complete bullshit. It is not, yeah. right? Yeah. And it can't be, right? Yeah, and it's also been appropriated by the the right wing, right? Like yeah. it's become like a, um, yeah. but I think that's so, so for me, like, I feel like, you your your two minds like you have one yours is the mirrored mind the design pattern mind and then there's a chitra kavya mind which is seems to be completely these seem to be you know opposite yeah. ends of the spectrum in terms of like how you approach language or yeah. how you approach art well i think maybe like i i said in the book that you know after you struggle for like four <laughs> hours with the ambiguities of language where you don't know how to make it beautiful right or you're struggling to do that it's kind of a relief to escape to a context in which the language in a sense is very limited, right? Or limited at least in its grammar, right? Because like other languages, by combining, combining the limited, what is the word? The limited grammar of the language, you can create many effects, right? But there's mm -hmm. something, it feels much more like a puzzle that you're trying to solve, which has a very limited solution, right? And so, yeah. and, and so, and then, you know, at some point, coding can seem like a prison, right? So then you want to escape from it. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's different kinds of functions of languages and different contexts. Uh, I don't think, you know, algorithmic thinking in the computer code sense, it's not as foreign to people as many people think. Uh, uh -huh. It's like, you know, if you, I mean, Grace Hopper, Admiral Grace Hopper, one of the great pioneers of, of, uh, of computing, mm -hmm. um, she famously, so, you know, in, I think it was, was it Vogue or some other magazine, which in mm -hmm. the 60s published an article where they were trying to talk to women about the possibility of computer code, right? Coding, mm -hmm. becoming a mm -hmm. programmer as a great Yeah, yeah, I remember father. this part. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, Grace Hopper says, you know, it's just like a, you know, like working with a recipe, right? 
So you have these limited amounts of ingredients, you mix them together, you order them in a certain way, and then it produces an effect. Right? Yeah. Uh, so so <clears throat> I think the problem is that the way the tools that we have for teaching it are kind of clumsy and limited. Most people don't understand how to install a programming environment on their on their, you know, on their laptop or whatever. Yeah. My, my kids who are um, 11 and 14 um, have been talking about computers and looking at, you know, programming and it's an amazing school, right? And so I'm not blaming the school. Mm -hmm. it's just, I don't think anybody has the tools yet to, to convey mm -hmm. algorithmic thinking to, to, to young kids, right? Or even adults, right? Even adults. Right. Yeah. And, and the other part is that the way we teach it. So I took a couple of computing uh, programming classes in college mm -hmm. and I found them completely boring. Right. Like so the problem, <laughs> which would be suggested, yeah. like here, yeah. you know, sort this list of words. And then yeah. after I graduated, I was to make money while I was going to film school. I was working at this insurance connected business where we mm -hmm. had to type up boilerplate text for insurance reports. Yeah. And then, you know, um, word processors have macros, right? You can automate, you know, typing. And yeah. I was like, oh, I can like, if I if I make like five macros, I can write an entire report that used to take me 40 minutes in like yeah. five minutes, literally, by <clears throat> kind of filling in the blanks. I can then goof off for the, for the 40 minutes, right? So anyway, I'm going on too long about this, but what I'm saying- No, it's fascinating. Is, yeah, it's like a- I, I wish that coding was more democratic, right? And it's this is often a topic of discussion in the tech community. And then people like first will say, use this tool, use this learning environment. But yeah. the reason that this discussion is happening is that we haven't figured out how to do it yet. So I'm gonna put a pin in algorithmic thinking because I wanna come back to that, but I just wanted to, uh, I just had a little anecdote so um, in, in Geek Sublime, we talk about Ada Lovelace, um, whose father was Byron yeah, and yeah. whose mother was a mathematician. And my, my daughter, who's nine now, but when she was much younger, she used to have this, this book, this children's book called Ada Lovelace, Poet of Science. Yeah. Um, and it was about how Ada Lovelace kind of combined her father's poetic nature mm -hmm. with her mother's very analytical very nature great. to you know basically create i think yeah, which is yeah. the first computer yeah, um yeah. by using french the what is that the um i, I forget no i forget what it's called that french um the loom the loom yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um and i thought yeah, that so was i mean she she didn't nobody in that era actually managed to make <laughs> a physical computer right? yeah but but the idea of algorithm right how to produce this limited language that you could do anything with. And she's a lovely writer. She writes about, you know, once we can do this, we'll be like, you know, magicians. You know, I can't remember yeah. the exact quote, right? But, yeah. but it's beautiful. Yeah. She wrote the footnotes to this guy's book and her footnotes are actually more important or more impressive than the book and yeah, yeah. bigger than the book. Um, and of course, so for, in my mind, it's like, um, you know, the way I kind of train myself is like kind of matching or like kind of melding algorithmic thinking to a, a poetry or poetic language because if you just if you just keep looking at language like 
this is a big mistake i think that you do in your first year of your workshop or mfa is that you you write a sentence so many times just getting it absolutely perfect <laughs> each each sentence should be perfect but then when they all put together they're so bloody boring like nobody wants to read this damn yeah, thing yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know so it ha- there has to be like i mean no offense i mean some things yeah. can just be beautiful for the language but there has to be like a structure or like an algorithm that kind of you know we as human beings derive a lot of comfort from patterns in a yeah, way you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no absolutely i mean i think storytelling is a deployment of pattern right yeah. so 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 I, love that. so i mean you know conflict is pattern making right there's it's this it's this pattern that has worked for thousands of years in every culture right yeah. so, so i mean in the west like one of the dominant patterns has been the traditional three three part structure of conflict right first act second act third yeah. act and you yeah. have an analogies like in on the smaller level indian um, stories work like this too right obviously you have, if you have arjun the hero you have to have duryodhan the the quote unquote bad guy right yeah. and then they have to clash they go through a series of writing battles this one day climactic battle right and yeah. and so forth and so you know this patterns like that character is a kind of pattern right what we are taught in mfa programs is this is how you construct a character of interiority right and yeah. complex character um and, and then down at this level of scene you know what is is the dialogue effective right so you, these are all structures that this is why we can teach them right yeah and so the trick lies in that you take these parts this pattern language and then you each time you're using it you can create a new thing with it right which is the wonder thing we'll think about language at the most like sentence level as well right um, mm-hmm. you know limited alphabet limited number of words and then you make something unique out of it right uh, so yeah no i i use the notion of pattern a lot right oh and then again i'm going to go on too long but why are children like your kid why are they so interested right from the part where they start being able to deal with language understand language why are they interested in story yeah right? and and why do they play indulge in imaginative play right in which they make their own stories is because all of that is training through pleasure for the all the pattern making that you will do during your life throughout your life yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely that's so true and like i feel like that's why like writing fiction or studying how to write not fiction but anything kind of sets you up for so many other um skills really or mm-hmm. you know um it 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 grows beyond just what's on the page yeah 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 absolutely right so so you know the creative mind and the analytical mind right void mm-hmm. <laughs> in in together is the same right where whichever domain <laughs> that you're yeah. operating in right so obviously with the with the ukraine war you, you you going on right now on twitter i follow like a couple of very experienced generals like senior mm-hmm. retired people right mm-hmm. and and so what you know in military thinking again you have certain equipment you have certain resources which are always limited you have a very a large scale problem that you break down into smaller scale problems right like okay i don't know we're going to capture this area of territory right and then 
what is that territory? You break it down to smaller parts, and then you have your bigger units, which are again mm -hmm. organized in smaller units, right? And then then both sides try their best, like through the horror of war and killing and mm -hmm. destruction, to achieve their end, right? Yeah. Um, and and that skill again is taught in military academies at the high level, but it's also taught at the very small tactical level, right? Ground level. Yeah. But that's what that fractal, the, that's the fractal symmetry I've been talking about is that, mm -hmm. you know, you yeah. have like the bigger units than the smaller and the smaller and smaller. Yeah. They're all like repetitions yeah. of each other. Right. Um, right. Are we, are we uh, done for time? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I hate to jump in because this has been such uh, a fascinating discussion. One of my favorites that I've ever heard on this podcast. Um, thank you. <laughs> but unfortunately, thank we've you. gone a little bit over time. But thanks again <laughs> uh, to my guest, uh, Nahid. Firoz Patel and Vikram Chandra. Um, his novel, Mirror Made of Rain, is available now at skylightbooks.com. Um, and you can order that one or any of the others we've mentioned on our website, skylightbooks.com. Thanks, guys, again. That, that was really so, so interesting from start to finish. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. Uh, such Thank a pleasure you. being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.